Welcome to another Down the Hatch podcast. Today, our topic is pediatric dysphagia. And we are very excited to have a special guest, Dr. Emily Zimmerman. First, I'm going to introduce myself. I'm Ianessa Humbert, and I'm an associate professor at the University of Florida, specializing in swallowing. Leash. Uh, my name's Alicia. I'm a PhD candidate. First time being able to say that on the podcast. Yes, yes. Um, and I also, in the first time, can say I'm now a fourth-year doctoral student. Um, under Dr. Enos Humbert. And most important, this is the first time on the podcast that you can say, you're a mom. I'm a mommy. Yay! <laughs> and this is Hudson's first public appearance um, to, the, to the world. He's sitting here beside me. And, uh, How old is he? He is five weeks today. We're hoping he'll make some sucking and or swallowing noises <laughs> as a nice background, but inevitably he'll probably just cry. Yeah. Right, Hudson? Probably. But he's very excited to contribute, he says. So, And importantly, our special guest is Dr. Emily Zimmerman. Zimmerman, Emily, do you want to do the, us the honors and introduce yourself? Yes. First of all, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited um, to be here and to talk about this very important topic to me. Um, my name is Emily Zimmerman, and I'm an assistant professor in communication sciences and disorders at Northeastern University in Boston. I am also director of the Speech and Neurodevelopment Lab. And in the lab, we look at sucking and feeding and early speech development in preterm and full-term infants. Um, and I kind of got into this area in this kind of really particularly um, kind of small field um, in graduate school. And, and particularly, I guess it was undergrad, I I took A&P with Dr. Stephen Barlow. And during that class, you know, that was really the class that clicked for me. I loved anatomy and physiology. And after that experience, I started volunteering in his lab. Um, and once I found my passion toward anatomy and physiology and neuroscience um, and saw the work that he was doing with preterm infants, um, I really identified with that. That was very clearly my passion in the field. Um, and so from that point on, I really started to pursue pediatric feeding um, and have been, you know, pursuing different facets of it throughout my career. Um, and I've worked in the NICU and I did um, my postdoc in newborn medicine at Brigham and Women's and have been at Northeastern. Um, this is my sixth year. Okay, so you're at Northeastern University and you uh, not only have clinical experience in the primarily the preterm population, is that right? But you also study that population? Am I right there? Or? Um, so a lot of my research work was um, looking at non-nutritive suck patterns in preterm infants during my dissertation. Um, so almost all of my dissertation and my, my research training was in sucking and feeding development with preterm infants. Um, clinically, I did my CF during um, after I had already declared my PhD, I did a CF, kind of a mixed model of kind of random places. Um, I was a substitute SLP in a sixth grade, which I kind of never thought I would, would be working in. Um, and then I also did early intervention and kind of home health. So most of my clinical experience has been in older children, um, but I have a lot of kind of sucking and feeding experience from my time in the NICU where I was feeding those infants, but I wasn't the SLP um, when the infants were having difficulties per se. Okay, great. So I just wanted to give everybody a heads up or uh, some information on why we're doing this topic. So 
Emily and I were paired to co-present at the recent Charleston Swallowing Conference. Um, it was a conference with over 800 attendees and like 80 presenters and many of us were paired up, which was really cool because I got, a, got to establish some relationships with folks who I might not, otherwise not know. And our topic was motor learning and neuroplasticity. And I spoke from the vantage point of adults who need to have experience with actually eating and swallowing, where the clinician is often the one taking that away and how important that is for learning and neuroplasticity, the actual experience with eating. And Emily uh, took the vantage point of infants and having experience with um, nutritive sucking, non-nutritive sucking, actually ingesting food, et cetera, and that's how they develop. You have to have the experience to develop. So while we were doing those talks, I thought, um, and also Alicia talking about bottles and nursing and all these other things that she was gonna get ready to go through, I thought in, what's really important is that the other half of what speech pathologists do in dysphagia is in fact pediatric dysphagia. The population of people who are considered pediatric who have swallowing problems are as much as adults. The issue is that adults get a lot more attention and many of us work in adult populations. So it seems like there aren't that many babies or children with swallowing problems, but there just, there are. And so I thought it would be pretty cool if we dedicated a podcast to this topic and hopefully Emily will be back for many more topics um, as we advance. But for now, I just thought this would be a great introductory version of this topic. And the first thing that came to mind that I thought you might wanna tell us is what are three things that you believe everyone, or maybe more than three, maybe less than three, what are some things that you believe everybody should know about pediatric dysphagia? Yeah, well, I think uh, the first thing to kind of consider is the complexity and the multifaceted um, different variables that can go into successful feeding. So, um, you know, we have genetic issues, we have swallowing issues, we have sucking issues, we have respiratory issues. Um, we have how old the infant was when he or she was born. How much did they weigh? What was the pregnancy like? Um, what is the current situation that they're living? So are they in the NICU? Are, in the, are they, which is the neonatal intensive care unit? Are they in the pediatric ICU? Are there craniofacial anomalies? Have these infants experienced comorbidities? So other kind of ailing issues that might affect the feed. So these include things like um, respiratory distress syndrome or chron chronic lung disease. So these are respiratory issues that often develop in premature infants who've spent prolonged time in the NICU. Um, other things are, um, was the infant um, a baby of a diabetic mother? So that is kind of a new area that we're, we're showing have, has some kind of profound effects on feeding. So I would say the complexity of feeding but also the individuality. So um, as you're assessing sucking and feeding, you know, every baby's gonna be different. So every baby weighs a different amount. Uh, males and females express these skills differently. Um, and then the last thing to also consider is the development. So, you know, the infant you see one week, a few- <laughs> Sorry, I have to, have to say, um, of course, yeah, when you're like, getting- We're all different. Yeah, it's really speaking to him. So he's yeah, like, I know. I know. We can, we're connecting. Um, but yeah, so so in the course of your treatment, the babies are actually maturing and growing in their skills too. So you have to keep that in mind. 
Um, and then a key point is the mom. The mom is the volitional player here. And I think that this is really something that's substantially different than the adult model. We have this caregiver, um, so mom or caregiver, who's really going to be the decider. Um, and this is particularly important in the neonatal intensive care when we have a model where um, SLPs or OTs and nurses are primarily doing the feeding, and then the baby's discharged to the mother or caregiver or father, um, and then the, the role is kind of changed and the mom is left to, to feed this baby who potentially had difficulties. Okay. So if you had to summarize, you'd say one, it's very complicated. There are a lot yeah. of factors to consider. Um, there's all the issues with the child, there's issues with where the child is. And another factor is that you're not just dealing with the patient who is the child or the infant, that caregivers are really pretty important um, in this because the child can't make decisions for themselves and oftentimes maybe can't feed themselves, correct? Correct. So uh, then the other question is uh, that I'd like to ask you is, do you feel given all the things that you really think are important, complexity, caregivers, how well are SLPs uh, prepared upon graduation to treat individuals who are peds and have dysphagia? Um, upon graduation, do you feel like we're pretty much ready to go? Because it's in our scope of practice, a recent graduate can begin a CFY at a local hospital where that person is the only SLP and actually begin working in a pediatric ICU or a NICU or something like that if the people who are hiring them don't understand that all they need is their C's. Thoughts? Um, that is an excellent question. I'm glad you asked it. And I, and I think the answer is primarily no, we're not prepared and we're not preparing our students. And I think that this is a huge issue for our fields. I think it's a huge issue for um, how we're viewed in these really intensive settings. So I had published a journal article called Pediatric Dysphagia, A Rise in Preterm Infants and a Need for More Formal Training for Speech Language Pathologists. Um, and the reason I even kind of decided to look into this was I was seeing this kind of mix a mismatch between this rise and this huge need in infant feeding um but it wasn't being matched with slps who upon graduation or even those who are working in these really intensive situations having a really strong foundation um and skill set and evidence-based practice to be helping these babies um mm -hmm. and a lot of that goes with kind of a lot of this kind of fosters kind of low confidence um, in the clinician and working in this intimidating setting. So what we did in this in this paper was we interviewed the top um, 107 graduate programs in the U.S. and asked them if they offered a separate pediatric dysphagia course. Um, and only 21% offered a separate pediatric dysphagia course and 79% did not. So oftentimes, the different graduate programs would say, yes, of course we cover pediatric dysphagia, but this is uh, discussed within one lecture of our larger pediatric or our larger dysphagia course. Mm -hmm. um, and then we posted a really quick kind of five minute survey uh, to the SIG 13 page um, and essentially ask if you took a pediatric dysphagia course and then how prepared did you feel to work with someone with pediatric uh, dysphagia soon after graduation. So 
Um, what we found was that the majority of participants who did not take a pediatric dysphagia course felt unprepared to work with this population. Um, in general, participants who completed this course tended to be younger um, and had spent less time working as an SLP. So this means that potentially, you know, this trend is changing that, you know, this younger generation of SLPs is getting more specific training in pediatric dysphagia. But it was quite alarming that um, a majority of people who do not take a specific course feel unprepared to be working with these clients that they serve. So uh, it sounds very similar to adult dysphagia, except the difference is that um, many times, uh, at least in adult dysphagia, many people have at least had one course. So yeah. it's worse because it might be a lecture in a course. And I'm the person who teaches the dysphagia class at the University of Florida. And when I got a chance to work with you, I remember saying, you and I need to work together because I am not servicing them well enough to be prepared at all in pediatric dysphagia. And I've been saying to my department chair and to my, um, to my program at UF that we need to have a separate course in it. In pediatric dysphagia, it warrants its own course. It, it's not going to be enough in the same way one adult course is not enough. But it, how wonderful would it be if programs had two courses in dysphagia, one adult, mm -hmm. one pediatric, and preferably three. One is normal across the lifespan, and then yep. two and three are the disorders you're going to deal with across the lifespan broken up between primarily peds and primarily adults. That's what I'd love to see happen. Yeah, I completely agree. And what I think is particularly interesting is that Asha actually agrees. Asha says that, you know, um, they set out, they sent two different, one is a technical report that was in um, 2007 that encouraged graduate programs to increase the education and training demands, um, provide students with knowledge and skills to evaluate and treat dysphagia across a variety of populations and settings. And then again, in 2010, the Asha Code of Ethics stated that SLPs who work in pediatric dysphagia settings should be specifically educated and that experience in adult dysphagia does not qualify individuals to provide dysphagia assessments or management services to children. So we know that ASHA agrees. Um, the difficulty is finding the finding people I potentially qualified to teach pediatric dysphagia. It's a relatively small field. Um, but again, there's this disconnect. And unfortunately, it seems like we're putting the burden on kind of recent grads who have this passion to kind of find out ways in which to kind of build this foundation themselves. Right. Um, and often they're thrown into this setting. And, and, you know, I've met amazing SLPs who've learned kind of boots on the ground and done amazing things. But you have to wonder during that learning process, you know, um, Alicia, if they were learning on your baby, I'm sure you would feel a little bit anxious about that. A little sure. bit anxious. Yeah. Would be like, <laughs> hair out. Well, you know, what's crazy about it is that it's easy to think of pediatric dysphagia as like a subset of dysphagia, but it's really is a whole different field. So it was pretty funny for me when when Hudson was born, he's five weeks old now, but his first few weeks of life, he had latching issues and um, was not gaining weight and was engaging in a lot of non nutritive sucking. And I had no idea. Yeah. And I had no idea what to do. So you can imagine what it was like when I finally had to, you know, have a lactation consultant come to my home to be like, what the hell am I doing here? Like, and she's like, what do you, what do, you do for a living? And I'm like, 
he, he's remembering it and was like, oh, um, you know, and for me to tell the lactation consultant, oh, I'm a, I'm a swallowing specialist. Yeah. <laughs> I said, you know, I, I specialize in dysphagia. I've been studying it in the PhD program. And, I'm and looking clinically, at, I have a lot of experience, but I don't know what's going on right now. Yeah, <laughs> and I'm like, but I'm looking at her like, I need you to tell me what to do right now. Yeah. <laughs> it's me. completely different. And I think that yeah. is like what is so humbling about being a mother. Even I'm a mother of two, and I, 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 it is even what I study. And sometimes I'm like, what are you doing? I don't even know what's happening. I had no idea. And, and I, you know, to be honest, I had a gross lack of appreciation for those that specialize in pediatric mm -hmm. dysphagia until I went through it myself. And it was like, hold the phone. We mm -hmm. need tons of these people because yeah. the, the emotional toll that it took on me as a mom, not being oh, able to feed a child was like, just outstanding. Like, well, the same thing happened to me. It was almost 12 years ago with my second son who uh, basically needed to do the same thing, which was latch as soon as we came home. And uh, it was the same thing, except I was doing a postdoc with mm -hmm. Joanne Robbins. And I was like, uh, so what do you do? Well, I specialize in swallowing and uh, <laughs> I please make his baby eat now. Right. And I mean, we started out just syringe feeding him from the, you know, just so he could calm down. I'm thinking, well, gosh, why didn't I think of that? Because I can't think about this stuff right now. I'm just trying to make this baby live, right? It's like none of the information really goes, go translates. And so no. I think that obviously if it's our own child, you think that we'd be able to incorporate all the things we know about as experts, but I wasn't trained in pediatric dysphagia. I have very little experience there. So um, frankly, that's like saying if I had dysphagia, I'd be able to fix myself as an adult. Like it doesn't doesn't work that For way, sure. does it? Yeah. And, and I, I feel exactly the same about the adult population. You know, while I've done a million different bedsides and different swallow studies with them, I like now that this is my specialty, it they, you know, the, the overlap is actually quite minimal. Like you have, you know, the neural control, but that also changes with development. Um, and pretty much once the kind of the swallow is started then it's similar kind of and that, and that's about it kind of yeah um, i think it'd be helpful um you know for somebody who specializes in adult when i think of dysphagia management i think of you know these are people that have always swallowed normally and now due to some sort of injury or insult they're not and the and the focus is on treatment and compensatory strategies and rehabilitation that is really not existent in in the way you approach pediatric dysphagia. So I think Emily, it'd be helpful for you to maybe just kind of touch upon like what is really involved in pediatric dysphagia because the whole idea of latching and and sucking and all of these things was like I don't deal with that. <laughs> of course, right. in adults, it'd be helpful to maybe for you to just touch upon like your scope of practice within this subspecialty. What's yeah, what's all that's a great question. And, 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 you know, really it starts with um, the infant state to begin with. So, you know, we want an infant, as you probably know, who's quiet and alert. So that's going to be the ideal state for feeding. Um, and so once the baby's able to kind of maintain that state, um, some, some preterm infants have a lot of difficulty with state control. So that might be their first goal. You want, um, not too many desaturations. You don't want bradycardia. Um, so you want stable cardiorespiratory patterning. I recommend, you know, non-nutritive stuff. I, that is my particular area of expertise. Um, and I have 
I am a huge pacifier, non-nutritive suck fan. Of course, I have to add my claws as an SLP. You should probably wean it by 12 months so we can get some good speech. But um, I, I think especially if for babies who are struggling, a pacifier before before your feed has been shown to make the babies more alert for their feed, take their first few sips of their bottle stronger, finish their bottle faster. Um, and, and babies in the NICU who are learning to feed actually learn to feed sooner when non-nutritive suck is part of the component. Mm-hmm. And then you also oh, want- no, wait, make- So I understand. I understand from Alicia, just when I went to, uh, to her house to visit Hudson for the first time, that there are people who actually don't believe in a pacifier. And I just want to tell them, that's like saying you don't believe in oxygen as a mom. Like, I'm yeah. sorry, this is my lifeline to be able to get five minutes to go use the bathroom and actually brush my teeth right now. Yeah, so exactly. What, so where did it come from? I mean, the thing is they've been non-nutritive sucking in utero with their thumb for so long. And if they can get their foot in their mouth, they'll do it. Why would we <laughs> stop it? Just because why would we discontinue that? What's the argument there? But it's funny when I introduced the pacifier to him, and I don't know where this came from. I had a feeling of, I don't want to tell people. Really? Yeah, like it's, it, it's, it's so controversial. But it's like a, I don't know if it became some sort of stigma. Something must have changed because when I was, when my first was in the, um, the not, well, the NICU, I guess you could call it because he was born a little early. They had a pacifier before they had me in there. I was like, I hadn't even seen him. The child had a pacifier in his mouth and he's fine. I don't know. Tell us more. So the pendulum has swung um, and it does this like every handful of years with breastfeeding. Uh, my approach and philosophy and, and everything I know about the data shows me that breastfeeding is great. Everyone, I support breastfeeding. I breastfed my kids. Um, that's great. But I would say that with that pendulum swinging has come this kind of other view of being opposed to artificial nipples or pacifiers. So what we have to realize is you can still breastfeed and give your baby the nutrition it needs, or you can also give it formula, also getting the nutrition it needs. We shouldn't be judging either choice, but you can complement the breastfeeding with the artificial pacifier or bottle nipple. And what has happened is it is, you know, there, there's this kind of false theory of nipple confusion. I actually wrote a review article examining it because Often, a lot of these articles that I I have to kind of supplement my my more data-driven articles are just frustrations I've come upon in the field where, you know, if as a researcher, I'm like, I need your infant to suck on this pacifier. They're like, excuse me, what? A pacifier? Are you kidding me? Um, so, you know, m- majority of the data for, pa- for non-nutritive suck and um, pacifier nipple confusion is really non-existent. And often babies... So these studies are all kind of centered around, okay, so we found found that babies who are bad at breastfeeding also used artificial nipples. Well, of course they did. You know, <laughs> so that cause, causality is never determined. Um, uh, you're just looking at associations. And there's one really compelling article that showed it was it was a review of physicians and nurses in a NICU, and it said that even one exposure to an artificial nipple can cause confusion. And this myth is really being kind of top down, um, kind of sent out by the hospitals and the nurses. And it's interesting because the American Academy of Pediatrics and the World Health Organization have differing views as well. So um, pacifiers are actually recommended to reduce 
sudden infant death syndrome because the rhythmicity of non-nutritive sac in the nighttime can help with rhythmicity of breathing. So they've shown that to be a very positive effect of pacifiers. Alternatively, you have people saying not to offer the pacifier until um, like six months or some some or six weeks, depending on depending on the citation you're, you're looking at. Um, and you know, ideally, you really want breastfeeding to be established. But you know, from from my lens, I really think that non-nutritive suck again can help all of these skills. Um, so you want to breastfeed and get non-nutritive suck experience, but of course, I mean, I think after a week of exposure, you're okay. Or even, I mean, I brought pacifiers with me to when I had both of my, my children. And so like when I had my older, when I had my older daughter, when I went to the hospital, she's five now, they were like, do you want a pacifier? And I was like, sure, you know, and I was breastfeeding, but like, you know, there's only so long you can go with, you know, you have to run to the bathroom, you have to do these other things sometimes. So I gave her the pacifier. And then three years later, when I had my second daughter, they, I was like, can I have a pacifier? And they're like, oh no, we were like a family friendly nursery. We don't. And I was like, well, I brought my own because I am a not nutritive psycho. <laughs> friendly have to do with a pacifier. Well, they're just, they want breast is best, breast is best. But um, the pendulum has actually swung so far toward that angle that mothers are actually starving their babies, which is yeah. horrifying. Wow. So yeah, they, they won't supplement because it's like, well, if I supplement, then I'm going to ruin yes. the benefit of feeding and he's only going to want formula and they're not going to get that immune factor benefit from the breast milk like it's crazy wow i'm so glad that i didn't have to deal with that in fact i wouldn't be alive if that was the case because it turns out not only was i not a vaginal birth i was a similac baby <laughs> and i just found this out and i thought i was organic oh well well it's like yeah. it, it's crazy how the mentality of the, the culture of the time can infuse itself within you without sure. you even realizing it so when when the pediatrician told me because he wasn't back to birth weight after three weeks that I should supplement with formula, I immediately started sobbing. Aww. And I didn't even know. I was like, and then if, luckily I'm a researcher, so I'm like, let me go to the literature and see what this says. But like, where did that even come from, right? I was just like, I started sobbing and I was like, I felt like a failure. Like I wasn't able to you know, provide him with, with what he needs. And the thought of giving formula, but you know, and I'm sitting there thinking about it. I'm like, I literally have no idea where this even comes from, mm -hmm. these feelings. But it wasn't until I was able to do my own research and and you know come to facts with this was going to be amazing for him and it made breastfeeding better and exactly. you know so many benefits he was gaining weight and he was feeding better and I was happier <laughs> and I was like it, it's just amazing that 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 cultural um, you know aspect can just infuse itself. Without, and it's interesting because and, now and it's on to But you, you know, there's so many people out there that don't have the ability to really, um, you know, seek out those resources to, to, to find it out. They just rely on what other moms say and message boards. And, you know, hopefully you have a pediatrician that's, that, um, you know, is of a sound mind. <laughs> so, yeah. And uh, uh, go ahead, Emily. Oh, I was just going to say, um, I mean, now they're changing it to try to say more just fed is best rather than yeah. breast to kind of reduce 
some of these um, kind of horrible outcomes they're seeing for no reason. Exactly. So Emily, you know, in terms of like from a speech pathology perspective and specializing in dysphagia, one thing I've always been curious about is where as a speech pathologist, you overlap with a lactation consultant and what the differences are and, you know, what the roles are in the hospital or outside of the hospital, because it seems like there is some overlap. Um, but I imagine that there have to be pretty distinct differences as well. That was going to be my next question. Perfect. <laughs> Tell us about that. Um, so it's interesting because, you know, the lactation consultant, I think of as primarily helping with kind of the ability to breastfeed. So um, whereas SLPs can help with that and help with com uh, kind of compensatory strategies, positioning, those types of um, metrics. But I think of SLPs as mainly helping to improve kind of the physiology, um, the feeding itself. Whereas I think of the lactation as being really like the breast expert or brexpert, I'm going to just term that word right now. Um, and, you know, they're going to help you with the latch and the, and the um, position, whereas I think the SLP would tend to um, help more with the bottle feeding and the sucking. So how can they help with the sucking any more than we can help with posterior lingual propulsion? Like, how does the speech pathologist know what is going on internally uh, if they can't see it any more than adults? Because to me, that's one area where there's a lot of overlap between yeah. peds and adults is you can get a sense of the latch based on certain things, but neither group can actually see what the pattern is. I know you can do your suck, swallow, breathe counts, but how does a pediatric dysphagia expert, a speech pathologist, uh, really look at physiology? And that's a great point, and it's a huge issue. Um, in my lab, we created a custom non-nutritive suck device that, as the infant compresses the pacifier, um, it's a, attached to a pressure transducer, and we can see the suck pattern in real time. And oh, wow. what? Yeah, it's really cool. And what we have found is that this signal tells us a lot. So it's it's more than just, you know, amplitude is kind of, or how many cycles, the spatiotemporal or kind of the pattern of the suck. Um, so non-nutritive suck is set up in sucking and then bursts for breathing. So you have a, a suck burst, but how many cycles are within that burst? What is the frequency of that burst? How, how big is the amplitude? Um, so some of the work I had completed during my PhD with uh, Stephen Barlow looked at different comorbidities in the NICU, and we showed that infants with respiratory distress have a different pattern of their suck, and it looks different. Um, you know, and can we be looking at this pattern? You know, the goal of my lab and and um, really the hypothesis is can we use this early suck pattern almost like an infant hearing screen to predict um, kind of delays in feeding, and then you know the other other hypothesis in my lab is that this type of early oral motor patterning um, relates to kind of similar oral motor patterning that we see in babble and early speech. So is there a way we can look at this signal earlier uh, or even throughout development to see changes? So as the infant is going, um, you know, from different, different kind of types of feeds or transitioning to feeds, or how does it change throughout the first year of life? Um, in my lab, we 
look at how different sensory inputs can change this sock signal. So we have a study right now that we're um, working on getting published that has shown has data showing that when infants even look at a female compared to something that's non-social like a car, they they have more suck burst. So mm -hmm. the visual and auditory and olfactory systems all really play a key role. So even if clinically you don't have um, the, the Emily suck device in, in hand, mm -hmm. you know, you're able to do different modifications by using sensory stimulation. And so when we particularly when we think about the preterm infant, we're talking about a baby who was taken out of this really rich sensory environment um, where they were practicing at 15 weeks, things like suck and swallow. Um, they're, they get over 250 odiferous compounds that are within your amniotic fluid. So they're getting so much stimulation of the senses that when you're actually born too soon or potentially like if you're 25 weeks gestation and you're born, you've missed nearly half of that time in that environment. And now you're in a NICU that has bright lights, whereas in utero would have been really, really dim, um, really loud sounds. And in utero, you mostly hear heart and stomach noises from mom, um, and then eventually some speech sounds. Uh, you're not given olfactory cues, and you're not given that practice to non-nutritively suck. So I always encourage the non-nutritive suck because that's something that we know the babies were getting in utero. And then starting to pair that with olfaction from mom. There's been studies that have shown that if you put breast milk on some gauze and just even put it in front of the nares, the infant will suck more. Um, you know, so can you do things like kangaroo care or, you know, skin to skin while offering a pacifier or during offering a pacifier during nasogastric feeding? Um, so the baby's pairing satiation with non-nutritive suck. So I think the job of an SLP in the NICU is to kind of almost recreate the womb and have it be paired as we as we presented on with this really early experience um, that will then create and foster this really great suck. And also kind of these, these combinations of suck. And now I think of suck plus feeding plus mom plus being full. So it sounds to me what you're saying is that physiology is not the primary part. Certainly the sucking aspect, there is a way to get at that information because you can manipulate the actual pacifier, which is really cool. Um, but really for a speech pathologist that separates them from a lactation consultant, it's not just the suck, it's all of the understanding of uh, uh, what happens in the environment in utero and trying to understand when gestationally they were introduced to the world and what they've missed out on in any way that you can sort of incorporate into that into their lives because development for an infant is is has a lot to do with uh, feeding, obviously, and the whole environment around feeding. So what whatever an SLP can do early to normalize that feeding process is goes beyond just nutrition, doesn't it? It goes to bonding and many other things. Well, it sounds like a lactation consultant is a little more of that oral prep phase where it gets the boob to the mouth. Exactly. <laughs> effectively once it's there then it's like the slp can kind of come in and and go from there because i know yeah, when the worked with me it was very um very focused on me what i was doing with you know how to hold the breast and the c shape and the u shape and and what to what for me to look for for cues within him 
of the sounds of swallowing and, and looking for clicking and, and things like that. But from her perspective, she was very much focused on what I was doing and not as much as what was happening physiologically with him. Hmm. Yeah. And I think that would be, I would agree with that. And I mean, the other key, key piece of this equation is respiration. Um, and we know that, that SLP should be kind of uh, well-versed in respiratory anatomy, but also I think an SLP working in pediatric dysphagia needs to know about respiratory development because this is happening concurrently with their ability to kind of teach the suck swallow and the last piece breathe pattern. Um, so, you know, kind of being mindful, another group that they're going to work with is respiratory therapies, um, therapists, and, and, you know, try to also be understanding that because all of this is going to be maturing and undergoing developmental changes during the NICU course. Yeah. So, um, wow, you certainly have a wealth of knowledge that, I mean, for everything you're saying, you know, you, you have not just the clinical um, interactions, but you also have some literature knowledge and your own things that are going on in your lab. So I think a lot of people who are listening who aren't already at your stage might be saying, gosh, I really want to get into this. I don't know how to start. And there, as you said, there aren't that many experts in swallowing, much less in pediatric dysphagia. So I guess my question for you for as we close out would be, certainly ASHA does not complain or does not disagree that certain, that people need to be trained in this area. But in the meantime, until we get some experts, how can people learn more about pediatric dysphagia, especially those speech pathologists who are currently dealing with pediatric dysphagia and maybe need you know some more training while they're actually dealing with these patients? Yeah, I mean, this is a, a really great point. And I think that, I mean, CEUs are, are a great way to kind of be adding to the foundational knowledge. But what I really worry about in pediatric dysphagia is the lack potentially of foundational knowledge because there wasn't that coursework. And it is so different from actual adult dysphagia. Um, you know, I'd recommend trying to get involved in there's different kind of feeding conferences that focus on a lot of the topics that I discussed today on the sensory environments, on positioning, um, on mom and, and how to include her in the process, as well as dad and whatever caregiver is tending to the baby. Um, I would try to I would try to start reading in this field. So so the people who kind of contribute are SLPs, nurses, neonatologists tend to be a lot of the uh, group that work, looks at oral feeding or pediatric feeding um, and look at kind of different search engines. So like, you know, if I'm, I'm looking for an article, I always, I often don't even use the word pediatric dysphagia. Um, I usually call what I kind of study in my area of interest as being more related to infant feeding, um, often because I study a lot of normal development, but, you know, looking at oral feeding. So a lot of times oral feeding is used as the term um, as you're learning to kind of learn to feed in the NICU. Um, I would encourage SLPs to use the senses, use, use kind of different things and different methodologies that uh, will kind of target some of the neuroanatomy in different ways. Um, but I would, I would reach out to local SLPs who you think are, are kind of good in their pediatric dysphagia um, clinic. And I would ask if you could observe them, um, you know, try to get 
you know, in touch with pediatric researchers and see if there's any new articles they could be sending. You know, I would really kind of try to take control of this from um, kind of, you, you have to be really seeking this knowledge. There's no infant feeding journal. And often, you know, there are some pediatric articles in the dysphagia journal, but often I publish in perinatology, um, nursing, very, very rarely in ASHA journals. So, hmm. you know, be kind of looking outside the field. And oddly enough, uh, infant feeding doesn't tend to be a priority for a lot of um, kind of research funds or research journals. And I always am astounded by that because you think that would be so important if you can't feed, you can't thrive. Like this is the foundation for who we become. Mm -hmm. Well, well, we are certainly happy that we seem to have targeted one of the the people who's going to be pushing this field forward. Um, I know there have been pioneers such as Joan Arvidsson, um, who's been doing a lot of this, as well as Maureen Leftengreif, um, who've been doing a lot of this. Uh, Joan is in um, University of Wisconsin, Milwaukee, and Maureen Leftengreif is at Johns Hopkins. And so people can certainly reach out to them, but it seems to me that you are, you know, on the upswing, if you will, and, um, I don't want people to bombard you, but you might consider that you'll be getting a lot of emails <laughs> because I get so many students at the end of my class saying, what if I want to do pediatric dysphagia? And, you know, the sad thing is that I know I didn't cover it well. And I say that from the outset, I'm going to get you the best that I can in adults. And even that is not going to be enough. I won't even scratch the surface in peds. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a big, it's a big concern. And I'm also shocked to hear that there isn't a pediatric feeding journal and that the NIH doesn't seem to have a, a funding mechanism that really prioritizes it. But, mm. uh, again, you're on the upswing. So, uh, hopefully you'll be one of the people who is pushing to change all of that. Yes, I hope so. And I, I really appreciate, um, both of you reaching out and kind of highlighting this need, um, and giving it a little bit more of a voice. So I really appreciate that. Well, of course, as babies typically do, Hudson is fast asleep now that the podcast is over. Thanks, Hattie. <laughs> Thanks, Hattie. Yeah. He was farting the whole time. Did and you he, guys hear that? And he's sucking I mean, how is he sucking on a pacifier? What's going on? Yeah, <laughs> he, he is. He's sucking on a pacifier. Not okay. in a relaxed way. He looks like he could wake up at any time because I'm like talking right by his head. It's not, <laughs> it's not conducive to sleep. <laughs> Well, thanks for joining us, Emily. We really appreciate your time. And um, we hope that we can come back to you with a different topic on a very more specific population. If you'd be interested, maybe we can do one on preemies or something like that. Um, yes, or whatever specialty is. So we can continue this conversation. It seems to me that this podcast might be another forum for learning mm -hmm. in an informal way for individuals who just want to know how to just get interested in this topic and get informed. Yeah, we didn't. Yeah, but uh, Alicia just said we didn't even start on fluoros and that kind of things. But hopefully over time we can get there. Great. Great. Well, thanks a lot. Thank you. All right.